I hope, I hope you read what I wrote in the bulletin this week um, about our young people. A lot of them are going to Life's Leaders this weekend, of course, this coming weekend. And uh, some have already earned awards for things they've done throughout the year. Um, some will be, like they've done tonight, you know, things where they'll be going against other young people and seeing who has the best speech or the, leads a song the best or whatever. Most of you know I was a youth minister for almost 10 years in two different locations. Of course, I've been very blessed to the three congregations I've been a pulpit minister of, including here. Uh, the elders have asked me to, to also be close to our young people, not be the youth minister, but not stay, stay away from them, be close to them. This is a first place youth group. That's all there is to it. This is a first place youth group. We have tremendous young people. And what we've seen here just the last few minutes is wonderful, but it's really just a small part of it. And the things they do throughout the year, not just for latch leaders, but in so many other ways, uh, they are great, great encouragement. And uh, they truly mean a lot to us here at Central. They're part of us at Central, but they mean a lot to us as well. So it was a time of celebration, or you'd think it would be a time of celebration. You would think it would be a time when everybody would be on the same page and joy would be all that was being experienced. But as is nearly always the case, people felt differently about what was occurring. And maybe you've been there before. Maybe it was a time where someone was receiving an award and you knew that person deserved the award and everyone maybe was giving a standing ovation because this person was, was getting an award, but you were sort of only half standing and half applauding because maybe you got passed over for that very same award. Or maybe it was one of those times where we often describe them as bittersweet. Maybe you were at a wedding and it was beautiful and everything went well, but during the ceremony, for some reason, your mind drifted for a moment to a grandparent or someone else who had recently passed away and would have so enjoyed being there on that day also. And while everybody else around you was smiling and, and just googly-eyed at all the beauty going on, maybe you had to reach for a tissue and wipe a few tears of sadness away from your eyes. I want you to open your Bibles tonight to Ezra chapter 3. Because in Ezra chapter 3, we have just such a reaction. It's one of those bittersweet reactions. The people have been encouraged by Zerubbabel and other leaders to begin the process of rebuilding the temple. The theme for last leaders this year comes from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And since I wore you out with Nehemiah last year for like 20-something sermons, I thought I better not even mention that name except in the introduction or you all got to start throwing tomatoes or something. So I thought I better go to the book of Ezra tonight. As you recall, these two books deal with building or really rebuilding. And there's a lot of moments to celebrate. While, all, while it wasn't all the work that needed to be done at different times, there were milestones along the way, and one of those was found in Ezra chapter 3. But the end of that chapter is a bit confusing to us. Look at what's written, first of all, in Ezra 3 verses 10 and 11. That's not confusing. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout, 
when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Now those two verses read just like we might expect. However, the very first word of verse 12 changes the tone as you have that contrast word, but. Here's a moment of celebration. Here's a moment of praise. But something different is also going on. And it's going on right there among the people. Look at verses 12 and 13. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, that is the first temple, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So what's going on here? Why are some of these people weeping? When the text makes it clear that these are not tears of joy, this is a bittersweet moment, and something brings up that, that bitterness, something brings up that sadness that causes some people to weep. I want to briefly tonight just consider three things about what could have possibly caused some of these, these men to, to weep and make some applications from each one to ask us, what makes you cry? Are there some spiritual principles behind these things that could have led to these tears that could be things that should cause us to be emotional whether we literally shed tears or not? I think there are. First of all, it could have been a lack of grandeur. The most common, read commentaries and things, the most common reason given as to why maybe these men were weeping was that they're, they're finally, finally seeing with their eyes that this temple will simply not be as large as Solomon's temple had been they'd seen decades earlier. Now the foundation is laid, it is just obvious that this temple, no matter how large, no matter how ornate it might have ended up being, simply cannot match the size, the splendor of Solomon's temple that they remembered from earlier in their lives. And I, I don't doubt that plays a role in it. The Old Testament spends quite a bit of time describing the splendor of the temple that Solomon had constructed a few generations earlier. It had not been a massive building, but it was still large enough, and it was nothing short of breathtaking in beauty and grandeur. When you carefully read the descriptions of materials that were used and all the care that was taken in building it, if you really read that carefully, it can almost cause you to stop in your tracks and just simply be amazed. It can kind of make you have to catch your breath. That's what actually went into the building of that first temple. But the temple that's now being started on, the foundation being laid for it, in Ezra chapter 3, it's going to be something to behold but it's just not going to be Solomon's temple. And with the step of laying the foundation, there may simply be the first sort of hit of reality for those who had seen the other temple and are now getting an idea, at least a mental idea, of this one. I want to use that picture to make this spiritual observation for our day, our day and time. If I look back on my life, and realize how good I used to have it with God, and I don't have it that way anymore, I hope some tears would flow. And I hope it would lead to tears of repentance. Now, being with God does not mean things will be grand in an earthly sense. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not suggesting we'll get new cars and nicer houses and fully funded retirement accounts by being faithful. That's not the point. 
But instead, when we think of being near God, there is, if you please, a spiritual grandeur that should accompany that. And we should long for it. But if I realize I don't have that spiritual grandeur in my life any longer, being that close to God, whether I actually shed tears or not, the emotion should be there. And the good news is, we can have it again if we'll draw near to the Lord in repentance. But if I realize it's not there, it should cause me to do some serious emotional thinking. Or maybe they cried because of punishment for national, or you might want to choose the word congregational, sin. Way, way back in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 27, God had made it clear that if the people, His people were sinful, and if they were taken into captivity due to their sin, their numbers would be decimated. In Deuteronomy 4.27, He said, And the Lord will scatter you among the people, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. Now one of those things that's always true in the Old Testament and makes the Old Testament beautiful is there's that constant reminder of a remnant. We love that concept in the Old Testament. But God makes it clear there that they, things will not always be like they have always been. One book of the Bible, of course, the book of Numbers, makes that count quite large early on. Something over 600,000 just fighting men that come out of Egypt and are found also later in that book, in the second numbering in that book. But then you come to the book of Ezra, and there's a counting there also. And if you look at Ezra chapter 2, it's 70 verses long. No, we're not going to read all of it. But when you look at everything that's found in there, and you start adding things up, verses 64 and 65, the whole assembly together was 42,360. And you look at verse 65, and you have servants and other people added to that, and you still scarcely get to 50,000 people total. Can you imagine the bitter sweetness of that moment? Especially for those who have lived through the entire captivity. They have seen so many people die who would have found such great joy in returning home and in seeing the progress that at least was starting to be made in the city of Jerusalem. So possibly, some tears flowed because of the reason for that loss. God did not say way back in Deuteronomy that the people would just lose their numbers just arbitrarily. All of this would happen due to the people's sin. They would be sent into exile because of their sin, because they were stubbornly sinful. And, and as that went on, they would be simply decimated. So while this celebration is going on, there's a reminder that it never should have had to be that way in the first place. The entire assembly should have been faithful to God all along and should have still been worshiping God in and around Solomon's temple all of that time. But now as it was, huge numbers of their people did not get to see that moment. And it's also a reminder to us to make application that yes, my own sins should cause tears, but so should group, collective, even congregational sin. I don't want to make this necessarily an application to a nation. We could do that if we wanted to, and that's fine sometimes, but we'd be very careful, I would suggest, with trying to compare any nation today with Old Testament Israel, since Old Testament Israel was a theocracy, and we are not. But we can think about this in a way congregationally. What would happen if we saw something as a group of people from God's Word and realized we were not doing what God said? 
Or what if we realize we were doing something as God's people and we realize through study that we're, we're, we're doing something God has said not to do? What would be our choice? How would we react to that? Too often, people who have that happen just keep doing what they've been doing because they've got comfortable with it. Instead, there should be weeping because we haven't been doing what God said. And those tears should be a godly sorrow that works repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10 And I would suggest that can be true even congregationally. I'm not sure I've ever seen it done. But there could be times where even an entire church family has to say we have not been faithful and it's time that we change that. And when the realization of that occurs, emotion should be found there. And number three, it's possible they wept because the most important thing was missing. Earlier in Ezra chapter 3, the altar is rebuilt. What a wonderful place to start. Now, later in Ezra chapter 3, the foundation of the temple is laid. What a wonderful thing and truly a moment to celebrate. The place of sacrifice, the place of worship was at least being built in the rightful place. At least there's progress being made. But what is conspicuously absent in this description of the altar and the temple and all of this? The Ark of the Covenant. The very symbol of the presence of God among His people. It has been gone for quite a long time. Even though it had been, if I may put it this way, the centerpiece of Solomon's temple previously. In 1 Kings chapters 7 and 8, when the temple that Solomon had built was complete, in reality, sometimes we spend so much time talking about the, the splendor of it and the materials of it and the tremendous number of sacrifices that are made there and all of that's amazing and all of that's fantastic. But what the real moment of power was when that uh, temple was complete was when God's glory shone in the temple showing He is in the presence of His people. Now, it's a good thing in, in the book of Ezra that the people are building another temple. I'm not trying to suggest otherwise. But I am suggesting that no matter how glorious it was, <coughs> excuse me, no matter how amazing this temple might have been, the symbol of the presence of God was not there and would always be missing. And when the most important thing is missing, there's a bitter sweetness about that moment. Now, I hope I'm not stretching this point too far for a point of application. But I think it's worth making this, this idea. There are too many times where people gather for what they call worship, where the glory of God is not really present because He is not being worshipped in spirit and in truth. And when that happens, the most important thing is missing. God's name might be used Songs may be sung that use His name. The Bible may be read. But the emphasis too often is on the people and on their needs and what makes them feel good. And all the while, the most important thing, the glory of God, is not there. That should be a cause for weeping. It was not here, and I won't get any more personal than that, but I remember being where that happened before. I remember singing a worship service on one occasion where... The five acts of worship were all done. We sang, we prayed, we, we read the Bible, we, we ate the Lord's Supper, we gave, we, we did all of that. Nothing was added. But when the service was over, I was down. And upon a little reflection, it hit me. So much of the service, including the sermon that had been preached that day, may have mentioned the Lord to some degree, but it wasn't to glorify Him. It was basically to use Him as a garnish to speech to a speech that was meant more to make us feel good about ourselves. 
to state the matter bluntly, that is not worship. The glory of God is the main thing. And when that is missing, we should be emotional about that. You know, there are a lot of things that can make someone cry. I found a website that asked readers to share what made them cry, and then they ranked their, their most famous or the most uh, received responses. You can guess what most of them be. From, from the most common to the tenth most common, they said it was losing a loved one, losing a friend, losing a pet, seeing the one that you love, love someone else, um, asking someone out and being told no. This is a website for young people. Um, physical pain, being bullied or made fun of, your parents getting a divorce, stress, and I love number 10, bad grades. Yeah. You're thinking number 11, bad sermons. No, all, all of those are perfectly reasonable. We get that. And it's also reasonable to say that some people are more easily moved to actual tears than others are. Some just don't show emotions in the same way, and that's fine. But when you consider the things we talked about tonight, that are stated or implied from this text, from this concept of Ezra 3, we'd ask ourselves, by way of application, would those types of things stir any emotion in me whatsoever? Even if I'm not literally moved to tears, would it cause me to be hurt emotionally, to be far from that spiritual grandeur that I used to have in a relationship with God? Would it hurt me emotionally to realize the gravity of my sins, yes, but also of our sins, if that came to be the case? And would it move me emotionally to realize that God's glory is missing from what we call worship? If the answer to any of those questions is no, it wouldn't bother me, then I need to do some serious thinking and some serious time evaluating what is really most important in my life. We have been greatly encouraged throughout the day. We had a response this morning during our service. We prayed about it. We are able to see someone put Christ on in baptism after our service this morning. Some of us were still here when, when that happened. What a wonderful thing. We've been encouraged by our young people tonight. Folks, the most important thing we ever do is give God the glory. That should be the center of everything that we do. And whatever emotions that stirs within us, joy, sometimes sadness, sometimes just a mixture of emotions, it should move us to make certain that God is at the center of everything. I think we try to do that here. I think we can always try to do better at it. But I think we try to do that. And that's a wonderful thing. But make it personal. Is that true in my life? Is the glory of God the center of everything that I do? Here and anywhere. In my home, on my job, in my free time. Is the glory of God the very center thing of it all? If not, I may not shed tears. But I may need to make a change. In fact, I know I need to make a change. And ask God to forgive me of that. And ask Him to help me put Him at the center focus of all that I do. And tonight, maybe you need us to pray with you for that. Or maybe you've never put Christ on in baptism in the first place. And, and so you need to get that focus right and get the walk started walking with Him each day. Whatever you need is, will you come? Always stand and sing to encourage you.